then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy, and they are true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Morning, church. I want to welcome you uh, to the Wills Point campus as well as those that are joining us online and at the Edgewood campus. Uh, Today we're continuing our series uh, called Signs. We've actually been uh, in this series uh, for the last about 90 days. And so uh, for uh, the last 13 to 15 weeks, we've been uh, working through the book of Revelation. And uh, if you have not been here, uh, today we're nearing uh, the end. We have this week and, and just a handful more, and we will wrap up the entire book. Uh, but today we're going to be talking uh, about this idea of Babylon uh, in Revelation chapter 17 and chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And as we look through the book of Revelation, uh, we know that there's going to be, at the very end of time, what is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time that our Bible suggests that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period. And in that tribulation period, there's going to be a handful of characters that rise out of that period. Uh, From our Bibles and what Daniel shows us, uh, it seems to be that these characters are going to rise out of a revived Roman Empire, which we'll see here in a few moments, uh, that ultimately establish itself with kings, and then out of those kings, there's going to be one king that rises and ultimately has authority in that seven-year tribulation period, and we refer to him as the Antichrist. And as you look at the Antichrist, it's not just him, but Satan hands all of his power to the Antichrist, and then from there, uh, there's one that's the false prophet. And there is, in a sense, uh, the imagery and the idea that Satan establishes himself in the idea of the Trinity. And so as those of us in here that know our Bibles and we are believers in God, we believe that there is a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, In those days, that last seven-year period called Jacob's Trouble, a time of distress for the nation of Israel and the peoples of earth, that God is not taken out uh, by what I believe would be the rapture in Revelation 4, uh, they're going to be here and they're going to see Satan and all of his... uh, all of his adversaries, in a sense, plummeted to earth, and they're going to give their power 
uh, to the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is going to have one that is working with him called the false prophet. So you've got Satan, you've got the Antichrist and the false prophet, three and one, and their goal is to set themselves up as those who would have authority and ultimately not just authority in those final days, but their goal will be to unite all the people of the earth under one world order. And so Satan uh, is going to, to, in a sense, give Antichrist all of his power, and the Antichrist is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to set up a political system, an economical system, and even a spiritual system. And if you don't bow to him, bend to him, you don't take the mark of the beast, then guess what? He has no place for you. And so today we're going to dive into this, and we're going to see how all of this transpires, and it's surrounding this place called Babylon. Now, as we dive into this Babylon, uh, it's important to note that uh, in the book of Revelation, beginning in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Uh, You'll see it again. Uh, Last week we saw it in Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You'll see Babylon fall in Revelation 17, 5, as well as in verse 16 there's a mention there, Revelation 18, 21, and Revelation 19, 2, and 3. And so over and over again you see this city called Babylon, and then you see its destruction at hand. It's coming. And so the question you have to ask yourself today is, okay, number one, is Babylon indeed a city? And if it is a city, then what in, the, what in the world does this city imply? What does it bring about? And we're going to discover that today. And so here we go. And let me preface it by saying this. You're going to be thoroughly confused through the first 18 verses. But if you will hang with me, I promise you will leave out of here and it will make sense. That is a pastor promise. You got me? So here we go. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. The idea here is this, is one of the angels. We saw the bowl judgments last week, uh, and there are the full judgments and the final part of the tribulation poured out by God on the inhabitants of the earth. People who have blasphemed God, who have gone astray, who their hearts are hardened, they're wicked, they're deceitful, and in a sense, they have no use for God. Well, they've poured out judgments, and this is one of the same angels comes back, and he shows John this vision uh, of, a, of punishment. And this punishment is going to get, take place in the life of this great prostitute. This idea uh, of thought, this imagery of a woman who has gone astray, um, who she needs judgment. And the reason why is because she invokes impurity. She is, uh, in a sense, a a liar. And then she sits by many waters. The idea of this is later described as people. And the the idea of many waters is that she will influence many um, tribes and tongues and people. She'll rule internationally. It'll be a one-world system in a sense that she is invoking uh, her splendor and her power. And in a sense, she is enticing people to be led astray. Matter of fact, verse 2 tells us who will go astray. And it says, with her, there will be the kings of the earth that commit adultery. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The idea here is a a woman of many sensualities. She doesn't just look great, as we'll discover here in just a second. It's the idea that she has an aroma that entices people. And the kings of the earth will come after her, and they will be enticed and seduced. And it's not just the kings, but it's the people that follow these kings. It's kings and kingdoms that are going to be allured, enticed, and ultimately led astray by this prostitute of a woman. It reminds you of 
Uh, if you ever read the book of Proverbs, just day at a time, Proverbs 7 is the idea of a father warning uh, his son about, hey, don't be allured and enticed by a woman who she literally allures you in. She just, uh, by her, her sensual nature, by her beauty, by her smell, by the intoxicating nature, a man could easily be lured in by a woman who wants you to drink the wine of fornication. That's the idea. And he goes, fathers, train your sons not to be provoked by such nature. Well, here it is. It's the same idea. This, this woman is a harlot, and she brings people in, kings and kingdoms. Verse 3 says, the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Uh, this the idea of the desolate nature of, a, of the wilderness gives the idea that it would be an appropriate setting for this vision of judgment. Uh, matter of fact, if you think about um, judgment in the Old Testament, God refined and ultimately judged the nation of Israel in a wilderness. You even see, in a sense, um, the idea of a wilderness in Matthew 4 when Satan uh, tries to entice and lure Christ astray. And it's where you get the famous words of Christ. A man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. So the idea is this, is that there is, in a sense, being led astray. And it says, There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now here it is. This is where it gets a little crazy. You're like, do what? She's sitting on a beast. Is that like a dragon? You just got to refer back, okay? You have a handful of characters. You have dragon, okay, and that is Satan. You have the beast, and that's the rise of the Antichrist. The idea is that this woman is supported by the Antichrist. The Antichrist uh, is, is an allowing her to seduce and ultimately bring people to this religious system. And that's what chapter 17 is. It's just a religious system. It's a thought process that people are invoking. Uh, they are uh, indulging in the senses of the aroma and the looks of such a great religion, and they are following after it. And she is supported by not only this beast, but ultimately also seven heads and ten horns. Well, Daniel tells us what the seven heads and the ten horns are, and we've talked about this. If you've been with us, it's just the idea of the Roman Empire. It's a revived Roman Empire that supports the beast, and the beast supports this world system. That's kind of the idea. Verse 4 says, The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. It's the idea that these, uh, she is covered with this incredible beauty. Uh, though it's temporal, it's incredibly worldly. Uh, she has great power and splendor. Matter of fact, she was glittering with gold. She had precious stones and pearls. Here, she's incredibly glamorous. Uh, listen, she is beautiful. She enamors you. Yet, here's the deal. She's still a prostitute. Now, here's what I want you to understand. In chapter 17, you're talking about a religious world system. Religion always looks good on the outside. Where you and I struggle with religion is when someone makes an emphatic point of truth. The reason the Pharisees struggled so much with Jesus is that it wasn't as beautiful anymore when he says, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Hold on, do what? You are claiming to be God? You're claiming to be divine? And Jesus says, yes, not only am I God, I am of God in essence. If you want to see God, look at me. That was a struggle. Why? Because no longer could someone live by the relative truth or the assumptions they've made up in their mind. No longer could you live by pharisaical thought. You had now to choose, is Jesus divine truth? Is everything he says factual and real? Or is Jesus a lunatic? Is he a liar? 
in essence? Or is he truly the Lord, C.S. Lewis? And that's the idea here, is this, this woman is glamorous. She's got great religious looks. People come to her. She has a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great and the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. This title is given to her. She is a prostitute and abomination of the earth. Verse 6 says, I saw that woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. This woman is in essence the source of all idolatry on the earth. That's the idea. Everything that is not of God finds its fulfillment in this religious world system that is the abomination and the prostitute called Babylon. And it loves to revel at the fact that it's not truth. It's not Christianity. It's not Jesus. It's not God who has always been and always will be. It is whatever you want it to be. And here's what religion is. Religion is you are your own God. You make up whatever you would like. You follow whatever you decide you want to follow. And it's called relativism. We have relativism in our day and time now. Relativism says, I will shape my life in this way, and if you don't like it, then that's your problem. And we, in a sense, are just bounce off relativism. I'll give you one quick example. One area of relativism floating around in our culture right now is just the definition of marriage. How do we define marriage? Is marriage defined in a factual and a truthful way through the Bible, through the Scriptures, by God and His Son, in the fact that it would be one man, one woman imitating the display of Jesus and his church in purity, in love, in respect, in adoration. Is it order and equality, yet the diversity of gifts? And is it a picture of the Godhead? Or is marriage whatever you want? It can be between um, any type of person, man or a man, a woman or a woman. Who gets to define that? In this thought process, in Revelation 17, the prostitute of Babylon, you get to decide it. We get to decide what's true and what's not. That's called relativism. If you're not in relativism, then you must say, okay, no, there's a God of the Bible. We believe he defines truth, and we get in line with what he says. That's the difference. Do you understand? The lie here in Revelation 17 is what seduces people is that they revel the fact that Jesus is not king, they revel the fact that you don't know truth, and they want to bring you in by their glamour and their deception and their religious ways, and they want to dupe you into thinking that you are the king of the vast domain in which you live in. That's what this is. Verse 7 says, Then the angel said, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast that she rides, which are the seven heads and the ten horns. And that's where we all say, Amen. Thank you. Because I'm thoroughly confused if you're John, right? You've seen this, and he goes, why are you confused, John? I mean, what is to be confusing? A woman that's a harlot and sitting on a beast and the world's, I mean, and John goes, praise the Lord. Thank you for your explanation. And here it is. It's a really clear one. Watch. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, yet will come out of the abyss and go to its destruction. Awesome. The inhabitants of the earth, uh, the, whose names have been written in the book from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, yet will come. What? 
And so as we've discovered already, uh, if you've been with us, you know that in some essence what it is. Uh, when you look at this world order, uh, you get a little bit of clarity. Matter of fact, verse 9 gives us a little bit as well. It, verse 9, it says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven heels. Uh, when we've looked at the seven heels and the seven heads in the past few chapters, we've noticed that it seems to be implying governments. It would be as if Isaiah was talking about going up to the mountain of God. It's the city of God. In a sense, it would be the idea of not only governments, but of thrones. And so here it is. It's the seven hills in which the woman sits. The woman sits. They are also seven kings. So it, it gives you the inclination that these seven hills are seven kingdoms. And then it gives you more clarity. Five have fallen. The other is not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. Now, this is in reference to what you've seen in verse 8 and, in, and also the, the idea of verse 9. And it simply is, is there were five that were, there is one that is, and there is one to come. And the question is, is what are they? Well, we discovered a handful of weeks back that you could uh, conclude with uh, great precision and I think uh, with clarity that these five that were, were nations. Then as John is receiving this this word and this vision, there seemed to be a nation that was intact. And then it says, and there will be one that will come. And so if you look back over the course of your Bible, there have been at least five kingdoms, but five that run throughout your Bible that have set themselves up against the God of heaven. One of them was Egypt uh, back in the day of Pharaoh. If you remember Moses going to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. So Egypt established themselves and set themselves up against God. And God says, okay, I'm going to bring about destruction. Uh, later on, after Egypt, you would have in your Bible, Babylon. Uh, this idea of Babylon, matter of fact, Babylon, oh, Babylon has fallen. Where do you get that? Is the King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, if you remember Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, exiled to Babylon. Uh, what did King Nebuchadnezzar do? Here's what King Nebuchadnezzar did. You remember? He goes, hey, I'm going to build a statue, and if you don't worship me and bow down to me, if you don't get yourself into relativism, what I think is true, then guess what? I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know why they found themselves in a fiery furnace, is because they would not bend to relativism. They would not allow King Nebuchadnezzar, a person, to define truth. And so they find themselves in a furnace. That's all this is, is this idea of Babylonian thought. And so the Babylonians came and uh, went. Matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 5, you saw the Medes and the Persians raise up, and they overthrew uh, Babylon. Then after the Medes and the Persians, you had... Um, the Grecians and Alexander the Great. And Alexander came and he established his kingdom across the world. And he died and his kingdom was split up into four parts. And eventually it fell and it, you would see Rome. And so here it is. You've got five kingdoms plus Rome who would, would come. So you've got Egypt. You've got, uh, I, I didn't say Assyria, but you, I should have said Assyria before Babylon. You've got Egypt, Assyria. You've got Babylon. Uh, you have the Medes and the Persians. Uh, you have the Grecians, and then after those five, you have another one that established himself, the one who was in John's time, that was Rome. So you have six, and he goes, you have five that were, you have one that is, and one that will be revived. Well, Daniel tells us that in the seven-year tribulation, the one that is was Rome, and then ultimately it'll be revived. When it's revived, Antichrist is going to have power and dominion and rule, and he is going to have this idea of world thought and this world thought is going to be what you call harlotry. It's going to be a Babylonian thought. And then it says, not only do you have these seven kings, the one who's fallen, verse 10, 
the one who has not yet come. But when he does, he must remain only for a little while. So the idea is the revived Rome and its power of Antichrist will only be established for a little while. It's going to come and it's going to go quickly. Verse 11 says, The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king, meaning the Antichrist is going to come out of these seven nations of world thought and he's going to establish himself as an eighth king. He's going to be a kingdom that sets himself up against God. Do you know why the Grecians fell? Do you know why the Assyrians fell? They set themselves up against God. And so he is going to come out of these nations of earth. He's going to set himself up against God on a throne. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to bring about its destruction, Revelation 19. It's coming. In verse 12, it just says this, The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. That's talking about revived Europe, Rome. But who for one hour will receive authority and the kings along with the beast? They have one purpose. Here's their purpose. They will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and with Him He will be called the chosen and the faithful followers. The idea is this. The reason that you have an Antichrist is He is going to set Himself up on the throne, and, and this Babylonian thought is going to set themselves up against God, and they are going to be fornicating together in relativism. Whatever they think is right is what will be done. And they will not please God, and they will not honor God, and the kingdom will be divided against God. Does that make sense? You're like, I don't think so. That's cool. Hang with me. Remember the pastor promise. Verse 15 says, Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are the peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. That's just referring back to verse 2. She's going to have great influence. And the beast and the ten horns, the ten horns being the confederacy of uh, Rome united, give their power to the beast, and they will hate the prostitute. Underline that. They will hate the prostitute. Matter of fact, they're going to hate her so much, you'll see what they do to her next. They will bring her to ruin, and they will leave her naked. They will eat her flesh, and they will burn her with fire. Sounds like fun, right? For God has put it in their hearts to accomplish His purpose. So this is the purpose of God, by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city, underline that, that rules over the kings of the earth. End of chapter. And here's what it is. Let me sum it up to you in a couple of sentences. In the last days, in the seven years, you're going to have a bunch of people still on the earth who do not love the one true God. They have established their purposes against God. They do whatever is right in their own eyes. Do you know what trouble we have when we do things that are right in our own eyes? You have a Genesis 3 problem. You are lured away by the lust of your eyes. You eat what is desirable to you and sin enters in. And when you are apart from God, you do whatever it feels good, whatever is right. And hey, Lord forbid anybody tell you that you're doing wrong. Who are you to tell me that I don't have my life together? And in those last days, that's what you have. Anybody who is not left in those days, or anybody that is left in those days, they will worship false images. Uh, they will do as they please. They will in a sense, be doing religious things while at the same time involving themselves in a list of fornications. They will drink wine in the fury of God's wrath. They will love their own ideas, their own immorality, and it will all be under this one religious system. 
and you'll think, I am my own God. I can do whatever I want. And then here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a man who sweeps in in this seven-year period. He's called the Antichrist. And the first three and a half years, he's going to let you do your own religious thing. But then there's going to be a point where he says, no more do you get to do what you want to do. I am now the king. And he's going to overthrow all powers. He's going to chase Israel to the hills, uh, Revelation 12. They're going to run because they now know that they have been lied to. God of Israel is going to swoop down. He's going to show them who he is and rescue them. And all the other inhabitants of the earth are going to now be at a reckoning point. And here's the reckoning point. This Babylonian thought is going to be melted away. And here's why. The Antichrist is going to set on himself on a throne in Jerusalem. And here's what he's going to say. Hey, no longer do you get to worship the God that you've made up in your mind. No longer do you get to be a Buddhist. No longer do you get to be an Islamist. No longer do you get to be a Hindu. No longer do you get to be a Baha'i faith. No longer do you get to establish your own world order. There is only one now world order, and I am in charge. I am the king. If you don't bow down to me, you don't worship me, when I blow the trumpet, remind you of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 2, Daniel 3. If you don't bow down to me, then he goes, I have no place for you, and he'll kill you. He goes, you either take the mark of the beast, and if you don't take the mark of the beast, you won't eat, you won't have jobs, you will only have peril and sword, you will lose your life. And he goes, no longer do you get to be a part of the fornication of this world thought of Babylonia. No longer will you be seduced by this harlot. Basically, all Babylonian thought is now tossed to the wayside, and you will either bend and bow to the Antichrist and his kingdom, or you will have no kingdom at all. And Babylonian thought, religious world system, is gone. Now, doesn't that make a lot of sense? Now, let me show it to you in your Bible to make it really clear. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Encourage you to bring it next week. If you don't have one, we'd love to bless you with one. Go to our connection point on either campus, and uh, we would love to hook you up with a Bible. But as you look at your Bible, um, I want you to see something that's really unique, um, and it's very interesting. In Genesis chapter 10, uh, it's right after the flood. And if you remember, there was a guy named Noah who built this really large boat. If you don't believe about the boat, just go to Kentucky and see it. I hear it's incredible, right? Uh, But there's this really big boat, and God put animals two by two, and then he put seven pairs. And he also put a family uh, that was Noah's family, and he saved them uh, from the incredible judgment of God. And then he says, okay, we're going to start over. And when he starts over, they get an incredibly great start. Right off the bat, uh, they forget the goodness of God. Matter of fact, in Um, Genesis chapter 10, you get this table of nations in a sense. You kind of get the genealogy of nations and how they began. Uh, And in verse 8, I'm not going to put it for you up on the screen uh, on this part, but I just want you to to hear this. There was a guy named Cush, and he fathered a guy named Nimrod. Everybody say Nimrod. Nimrod. Okay, listen, you don't want to be a Nimrod, right? Um, Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Verse 9 of chapter 10 says, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. In verse 10, then it says, The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Don't forget that. 
Eric, Akkad, and Calne, all in the land of Shinar, which would have been the capital city of this land called Babel. And then here's what King uh, Nimrod did, because he's an intelligent man. He decided, you know what, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be a king that leads us to great things. And so in Genesis chapter 11, if you'll follow along with me, starting in verse 1 and 5, I'll put it for you up the screen, you'll see what Nimrod leads them to. He's, an, he's a great king. Um, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Remember the word Shinar, right? Seems to be this capital of, of, this, of Babylon. And they said to one another, Come, hey, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick from stone and bitumen and for mortar. Then they said, Hey, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for what? Okay, everybody look at that and let's say it together. Let's make a name for? That is the great prostitute in Revelation 17. Is religious world order that says, come, let us make a name for ourselves. Do you understand? Let us make a name for ourselves. And God goes, okay, so you're going to make a name for yourselves. And they build this incredible tower. And God says, okay, let me topple this thing. And he topples it. And then he goes, and now I'm going to disperse you. And he disperses them into language and tribes and tongues. And the reason why is because God says, listen, you... Nimrod are not a mighty man before the Lord when it comes to the Lord. You may look mighty among your people, and you may think that what you're doing is right and noble and true, but what you're doing is falsity. And you have taught your people something that they should have never done. They set themselves up against the Lord, and you know what the Lord does when you set yourself up against Him? He topples you. He topples you. He toppled Assyria. He toppled Egypt. He toppled Babylon. He toppled the Medes and the Persians. He toppled Rome. He will topple anybody who sets himself up against it. And he knew that he could not do anything with these tables of nations. Why? Because they were caught up in Babylonian thought. And God says, no longer, and he disperses them. And that's Genesis 11, where you have tribes and tongues and people and color. You wonder, well, how did I get this brown? Well, go back to Genesis 11. How did I get this language? Where did I come from? All of us are dispersed from Genesis 11. And in Genesis 12, God does something unique. He says, hey, listen, I can't work with these tables of nations that have been dispersed. I can't work with them because they want to make a name for themselves. So he goes to this guy named Abram, and he says, Abram, hey, I would love to call you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and I would love to establish a new nation. Will you follow me? And after some hesitation, Abram follows God. And Here's the promise that God makes. He goes, I'm going to make you into my people, and I'm going to make you a land, and I'm going to make you a people, and I'm going to give you my blessing. And he goes, Abram, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And as long as you obey me, then I'm going to take care of you. And he establishes the nation of Israel. And what I want you to understand is that he does so not out of these 12 nations. He, he just plucks it. And in, in, in his sovereignty, in his election, his grace, he makes a nation. Now, here's what's interesting. Throughout your Bible, you're going to see Babylon, and you're going to see God's people butting heads throughout your entire Bible. You got me? You have religious thought in Genesis 11. You have the people of God in Genesis 12. Matter of fact, 
If you'll flip over to Genesis chapter 14, let me show you something. Um, when Abram decides that he's going to be God's people, uh, he goes, okay, great, I'm going to follow you. And so God goes, okay, well, here we go. Let's, let's head out. And as he heads out, he decides that he can't trust God to head out just with his family. And so he takes his nephew Lot along. And let, his nephew Lot uh, causes a handful of problems. Right off the bat, he's captured by some kings, and Abram has to go into a little quick battle and get them. Matter of fact, in uh, Genesis chapter 14, if you look at verse 1, it just says, In the days of Amphrael, the king of, what is that? Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shedelamar, king of Elam, and titled king of Goim, there's this little battle that ensues, and he goes, and Abram gets Lot from the headache that he's created, and after the battle, I want you to see what ensues. In verse 17 of chapter 14 through 24, look what it says. It says, After his return from the defeat of Shedelamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, and the one who went out to meet him, the valley of Shava, that is the, the king's valley, there was one, verse 18, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. He disappears out of nowhere. He is the priest of God Most High. Hebrews tells us that he is, he is like that of Jesus. He is, the, uh, he, is the, he is the king and the priest. And do you see where he's from? He's from Salem. Salem is the place of peace. It is where you and I get the capital city called Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And right there, you'll see how Abraham responds. After Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, he blessed him. And he said, hey, blessed be Abraham by, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed him by the God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So he turns around and after the spoils of war, he gives him a tenth of all the spoils of war because he is this priest from God. He's, it's the first fruits. You ever wonder why you and I give God first fruits? Here's why. Because God is to be honored. And then look what happens. And the king of Sodom goes to Abram and he goes, hey, just give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And then look at Abram's response. This is huge. You can even underline it in your Bible. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possession of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Ashkel, and Mamar take their share. And here's what he said, and write it down. He goes, I am not associating with the kings of Babylonian thought. God gave me victory. I don't need anything that comes from you because God is sufficient and I'll only take what God gives through his priesthood. And here's what he does. He says, I am not going to bend to Babylonian thought. And here's what Babylonian thought is. Babylonian thought is that you and I are our own gods. Here's what religious system says. Religion says, and it comes in many forms, like a harlot or a prostitute in Revelation 17. It looks beautiful on the outside, but when you get inside, here's what religion says. Religion says you have to do more. You have to work harder to get to the God of heaven. And if you work hard enough, you can go up one mountain, and I can go up one mountain, and eventually we might make ourselves to God. That's what the Muslim says. That's what the Hindu says. That's what the Mormon says. That's what all of them say. If I work a little harder, then maybe somehow I'll get there. Religion is intoxicating, but it's an endless pursuit of a world system that does not line up with God. 
That's why the Pharisee had such a problem, because Jesus comes and he makes a pretty hard stance. And he goes, listen, I am God. Hey, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And here's the struggle right now. If you can imagine in our world system, the world system says, if I go to church, if I become a member, if I'm a part of this uh, denomination, then I'm going to be there. And here's what I want you to hear very clearly. There is not a denomination that gets you anywhere. It is not about a denomination. It is not about the coattails on which you were raised in. Because your grandfather was a denomination does not make you anything. Matter of fact, the only way that I am a part of the Melchizedek priesthood, the line of Jerusalem, the city of peace, is because Jesus reached down and in his sufficiency, in his death, he took a nasty, filthy teenager like me and he chose to give me light and life and grace. And it wasn't because my dad was a deacon or because I was a part of a certain denomination. Matter of fact, those are flaws against me, actually. Because my dad is a wretched sinner, and that denomination is wretched and sinful. And every denomination on the planet is. That's why we don't align ourselves with denominations over Jesus. It's why we are a priesthood of believers. It's why we don't need a priest to confess sins to. Because Jesus is the high priest. He is the one in which we confess sin to. He is the one who makes right before the Father. It is not a man. That's why as a pastor, I am here simply to equip you to know your word and to live out the call of God's ministry here for his purposes throughout this church and throughout the world. I have no greater influence to God than you do. We are all saved by God's grace. And ultimately, we are all a part of one of two systems. And it is either the city of Rebellion, which is Babylon, or we are a part of the city of peace, which is Jerusalem, the city of God. And at the very end, here's what you need to understand. God is going to deal with the prostitute called Babylonian thought. Babylonian thought is the Tower of Babel, the Table of Nations in Genesis 11. Hey, let us come and make a name for ourselves. Listen, if your goal in life is to make a name for yourself, you will miss out on the kingdom of God. You cannot claim to love both God and something else. You cannot be enticed and lured away and, uh, with your deceitfulness and claim that you know God. Matter of fact, that's why John, the same guy who gave us this great vision and this book called Revelation from God to the angel, to John, to the churches, is the same reason that he wrote in 1 John chapter 2 these words. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. My friends, when you see world in your Bible from now on, quit thinking generically. Oh, world. Think table of nations. Think Babylon. Think people being seduced by world religion, world thought. That's the world. The world are people who have set themselves up against God. So so what does John say? He goes, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, you see it? The pride of life. Those are what brings about the fall. They come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. Do you see? Very clearly, there's a separation between Babylonian thought and those who keep their eyes on the city of the hill. Why do you think the writer of Hebrews said, keep your eyes fixed on the author and effect of our faith, the Lord Jesus? Why do you think he said that? Because here's the deal. You remember Lot? 
You remember the, the little nephew that, that Abram thought that he would bring along? Do you remember him getting caught up in Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember God taking the angels and rescuing him out? Yeah, shake your head if you go, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Catch this, here it is. Lot is running out of the city. God says, do not look back. And Lot's wife looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus has made it clear that you cannot love God and the world too. And there's too many people walking through a religious world system that say, oh, I love God, but yet their whole eyes are on the world. Did Lot's wife survive that? And the answer is no. Why? Because she did not have her eyes on the city of God and the world that Jesus offers to come. That's why Jesus would say things like that. this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14-16. He goes, you are the light of the world, a town built on the city, uh, on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Do you understand why we put such a precedence on church membership here and living in distinct fellowship with God apart from the world? It's because there is too much stake. And this isn't a game. And at the end of the day, we need to know that our pursuit is a heavenly home, the city of God to come. It's not the world. It's not the lust. It's not the, uh, it's not the things that allure us. That is all a part of Babylonian thought. It's a prostitute. It looks great though, doesn't it? Doesn't the world look so great and enticing? Don't we struggle with the world? I mean, think about it. Don't we struggle with the world? That's why Jesus would say something even more shocking in John chapter 12. He says the same thing in all gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and as well as John. And he says this in John 12, 24 through 26, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Here's what it means. If you want the gospel to spread, you have to die to yourself. You can keep whatever you think is yours, Oh, it's just me and God. We're just kind of doing our thing. No, no, no. The church is what God wants it to be when we are sitting on the hill and our light is not hidden. We are also what God wants us to be when we fall to the ground and like a kernel, we allow our seed to be spread. That's where God does something. It's when we fall to the ground. If not, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then look what it says. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus makes it clear. He goes, you are a part of one or two kingdoms. He goes, there are a multitude of kingdoms over the earth. There have been kings that have risen and fallen. There was one that was, and there is one to come. But do not be duped, because out of all those seven nations, there's going to be another one that rises. And when it does, it's going to bring world order, and it's going to take Babylonian thought, and it's going to destroy it so that the Antichrist can say, come and worship me. But at the end of the day, you cannot be what you would call a Christian, a part of the way, and love the world. And so Jesus makes a distinction, and it's a hardliner. And he goes, if you want to be your own God, you do that. And he goes, and you'll gain your life now, but you'll lose it in the future. Or if you want, die to yourself, scatter my seed, be the hands and feet of Jesus, be the bride of Christ, and you can rest assured that your bridegroom will return for you. And you can rest assured that your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom 
full of peace and hope and joy. And there will be a king, and he will rule judiciously. And all things will be right. And the old order of things will pass away. Behold, there will be great things to come. And listen, you don't get there because of you. You get there because of the Melchizedek priesthood. Jesus, who brings both law and religion into one order. He is the priesthood. He brings pure religion. And he is the lawgiver in which all things are righteous and pure. Will you set your eyes on him? But don't be alarmed. He says something in Matthew 7 to many people. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Whoa, Jesus, wait, wait a second. I did many things in your name. I didn't know you. And the reason why is because there's a difference between world systems and Babylonian thought and the city of to come, the city of peace. And so may we be challenged to walk out of here and to let our light shine before men. May we scatter our seed. May we die to ourselves. May we live in authentic community. May we spur each other on towards love and good deeds as we see the day of Christ approaching. Do you see how it all ties in and makes sense? I'm not just trying to make you sign some church covenant. I'm trying to make you live out the gospel because it's important. One day we'll stand before a king and it matters. It matters. And I want you to be there with me. And I want you to understand this. I'm not there because I'm a pastor. And I'm not there because I'm really great. I'm there because even in my corruption, Jesus saw fit to reach down and, and save me and my sin problem. It's him, a high priest and the king, the one, Hebrews 4.15, who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. Jesus is the city to come. He is the king of the vast domain. Amen, amen, amen. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would uh, illumine our hearts to your grace and your sovereignty and your power and your will in our lives. God, may we understand that our Bible shows us from beginning to end that there will be many who set their eyes on this world and Babylonian thought. And you will have great conflict with people um, throughout our Bible and throughout history and even in this day and age who set themselves up against you. But at the end, end of the day, you will win because you are holy and righteous and true and you have all the authority in heaven and earth. So God, we want to be on your team. We want to follow you with our hearts and our lives and our will and our way. And we know that we cannot follow you in our own thought process because we are duped and led astray by the fornication and the beautiful nature of religion. But Lord, we know religion doesn't set us free, but a relationship with Jesus does. And it doesn't matter if we're Jew or Greek, slave or free. We are all one in Christ. It's not about denominations and it's not about influence and it's not about power. It's about us bending our will and our way to the holiness of your son Jesus. And so God, we pray that you would grab our hearts and that the mystery of the gospel would be revealed with truth and clarity in our lives so that we love you and live for you and we let our light shine among men for your glory. Use us, use this church and help us to serve one another until you come and receive us unto yourself. We love you, we are blessed to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.